The literature encountering violent extremism often concludes with hypotheses. Uh, measures of effect for counter-violent extremism programs are rare. A lot of organizations just simply don't do them because they're so difficult. It is especially challenging to analyze why and whether counter-radicalization and mobilization prevention strategies have succeeded with so many elements external to such programs possibly playing a role. So this plays very much into the, the challenge that we all have, uh, especially with our final memorandum uh, when we're talking about measures of effectiveness for whatever influence um, uh, subject you choose to write on. So, for example, it is difficult to understand with accuracy why someone did not join an extremist group, likely a complex multitude of reasons different for each individual. However, there are some case studies of strategies, that is, counter-extremism strategies, that may have effectively helped to counter-collapse some violent extremist organizations, and perhaps such case studies may inform current and future strategies. So what is a violent extremist? An extremist has an unpopular, a fringe, or radical view according to the observer. So the observer being the person looking at the extremist. Violence is an act or acts intended to physically harm a person and or damage property. The term violent extremism is often subjective and pejorative. Violent extremist organizations may take on one of many simultaneous feature, fe, uh, features according to analysts uh, and according to scholars. A single movement may have some elements that may suggest they are a top-down, centrally controlled organization, a brand, an insurrection, a less organized, narrow-driven group of disparate cells, a temporary governance system, and a criminal enterprise simultaneously or at different periods morphing between such identities. Terrorism. Politically, it is often a subjective pejorative term for maligned acts by maligned actors. One terrorist may be another's freedom fighter, something I'm sure you've all thought through or read about over the last couple decades. History may judge a once-labeled terrorist as a patriot. Professionally, we should understand our government as well as the governments of allied of our allies and international and regional organizational definitions, which differ. And this is very important in any influence campaign uh, when we're working with our allies in any kind of global strategic influence campaign. We will at some point probably work with allies, if not mostly by, with, and through allied governments. And it's very important before you walk through the door or start coordinating that you understand the various different definitions that they are using. As a strategist and scholar, you may study terrorism as a tactic as old as Homo sapiens to imbue fear beyond an action itself. The tactic normally involves violence or the threat of violence, sometimes but not necessarily with a view towards a political goal. A war on terrorism or a war on any common martial tactic is literally speaking irrational. Now, of course, we understand what war on terrorism is, what it means, and I'm not knocking the words war on terrorism necessarily. That's not my place, certainly not my place in this course. It's just, literally speaking, it, it's, it's nonsensical. Uh, to date, no ideology, no belief system appears to, monopoly, appears to be or have a monopoly on terrorism. Next is uh, radicalization, understanding this very charged term. Some analysts define this highly contentious term as the process of someone becoming radical. 
Some researchers emphasize extreme beliefs, focusing on a cognitive transformation. Others choose to study mobilization, that is the behavioral steps towards becoming a radical, instead or in addition to cognitive transformation. As a scholar and strategist, it may be wise to study all behavioral, psychological, grievance-based, familial, social, geographic, economic, narrative, ideological, and religious context and motivation behind what some deem radicalization or mobilization. There are likely many disparate complex avenues into and out of the radicalization process. Now, de-radicalization, uh, sometimes termed as counter-radicalization, uh, but specifically uh, de-radicalization as a subset of counter-radicalization, is literally the undoing of radicalization, but it's also dubbed demobilization, defection, de-escalation, desertion, desistance, reintegration, reinsertion, or rehabilitation, with varying and overlapping definitions and implications depending on the government, depending on the agency. So once again, definitions, those legal definitions are really key for us before we provide strategy recommendations or execute strategies. Such campaigns do not necessarily mean total ideological surrender. There could be a complete renunciation, conditional recantation, or short-lived pragmatic martial surrender, for example. So on ending violent extremist movements, in history, there are some case, cases of violent extremist groups cease, uh, ceasing operations to include, one, groups that imploded because people stopped supporting them. So no more safe haven, no more recruits. Then groups that were wiped out completely by government that waged absolute war, oftentimes for a century or more. Three, peace processes that allowed a political or ideological outlet along with demobilization of former militants. And four, groups that self-moderated into governing structures and even formal moderated, uh, or moderate, I should say, constructive governments. Now, on harming violent extremist groups, some uh, groups in some areas at various times in history have perhaps been stemmed by leadership deaths, negotiations with governments or civil society, uh, meeting their own end states, failure uh, to include failure to pass ideology to a new generation, or failure because of exacerbation of schisms, uh, loss of some public support, or accepting a political off-ramp. Then there's continued mass suppression, of course, and reimagination, such as when a politically motivated movement turns to crime. As we saw at one time, Abu Sayyaf did that, and then since then have turned back uh, with one foot, arguably, in both pools, that is, the violent extremist pool and the criminality pool. So I want to conclude with a couple quick case studies of ways that people have attempted to undermine uh, violent extremism in the last uh, couple decades. Uh, one way the governments have attempted to do this is to translate and redistribute and promote, or I should say translate, distribute, and promote uh, uh, reformist message. So first, they, you want to translate their credentials and their seeming independence from uh, governments, from uh, governments uh, wherever they reside or governments elsewhere. And one of the gold standard case studies in the last couple of decades is a man named Said Mom, also known as Dr. Fadl. He was founded the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. That is the organization that when they took on bin Laden, they became Al-Qaeda. He wrote what is commonly termed today as the Jihadist Bible. That is their word, not, not mine. 
Uh, and he wrote in 2007, importantly, a recantation in prison in Egypt. So he was imprisoned. Uh, he was actually found in Eastern Europe, uh, brought to Cairo, and then he's been in prison since. Uh, and so far, though, his renunciation really only played uh, well in Arabic press with some limited dissemination of parts of it uh, in English and some other languages. But interestingly, as a sort of possible measure of effect, but certainly a measure of performance, is that Dr. Fadl's revision, it caused Ayman al-Zawahiri to write a 188-page defense of his positions. So Dr. Fadl said, hey, what al-Qaeda is doing, what I used to do, it is not only tactically unsound, it can never win. He also said it's impious, it's, it's irreligious, and it goes against the tenets of uh, Islam. But when Zawahiri wrote this defense, uh, it gave Said Imam more legitimacy, more publicity. It squandered al-Qaeda leadership's time. Uh, it revealed al-Qaeda's fear of counter-narratives, especially by those that are respected within civil societies. And it forced Zawahiri to restate his support for violence. Some other examples of reformist messages that have had uh, somewhat of dissemination and translation, but perhaps not enough, are the 1990s uh, recantations, there's volumes of these, uh, by Gamal Islamiyah, another extremist group, another offshoot, but different than the Egyptian Islamic Jihad in Egypt. And then there are the renunciations of the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group uh, in 2009. Uh, another example of many examples um, is to stress the heresy of violent extremists. And I'm not talking about the use of violence, although that should and can be and is used on a day-to-day -day basis by counterterrorism and countering violent extremist organizations. Amplify arguments of violent extremist hypocrisy. So instead of governments coming up with the argument, you have those in civil society, such as religious leaders. And finally, there is a focus on innocent victims. Um, and that is arguing that killing innocents is not just something that extremists happen to do, but is core to their mission itself. Uh, oftentimes, you, you've seen the use of images of elderly and um, child and handicapped victims. And then there's the example of uh, Shema Abdul Halim in 1993 in Cairo. She was killed during a terrorist attack. The Egyptian government used her death. This is one person's death out of thousands that particular, you know, in that sort of three-year period around 1993. But they use this one person's death as especially tragic. She was a young, uh, young girl on the way to school. Um, and uh, they had an open funeral. And in fact, that was the moment. They turned that watershed moment. That is, they being the Egyptian government in Cairo, turned that moment uh, to try to engender their support for their counterterrorism approaches against the Egyptian Islamic Jihad who conducted this attack, the group that became Al-Qaeda. And this was the watershed moment when uh, there was nowhere in Egypt that Al-Qaeda members, or in this prior to Al-Qaeda, Egyptian Islamic Jihad members like Ayman al-Zawahiri could go. This is the moment they left Egypt and went to Sudan. They had no safe haven after this one event. So instead of focusing on numbers, instead of focusing on statistics, uh, the government in Cairo, the Egyptian government, decided to focus on the victim of one person and to gain support for their uh, harsh counterterrorism tactics and to try to lessen the support or passive support um, or passive acceptance of violent extremists in that country. Thank you.